0: Stop it. Don't open that door. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode Lucky Number Thirteen. Of the Masters of Unlocking podcast, my name is Scott, otherwise known as the Video Game Collectaholic, and with me as always is my fellow Master of Unlocking, Mr. Caleb J. Ross. How you doing, Caleb?
1: Good. I just learned that VG stood for video game. Um, I was thinking uh, Valiant Galliant. Uh, I think that was like a... It did start out as Valiant Gallant, actually, mm-hmm. yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You should have stuck with it, because I think that just makes a lot more sense, <laughs> given that you are an avid collector of Valiant Gallants. I do love the Valiant Gallants. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they just can't get enough of them. I cannot get enough of them. It's true. I've I've seen your shelves. They're lined with Valiant Galliants. <laughs> Whatever the medium is that Valiant Galliants is, uh, which I don't know that we we have established that yet in this hypothetical scenario. You have a lot of them. I do <laughs> have a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> I have almost as many of them as Blizzard has dollars from their Overwatch deal with
1: Twitch. Oh, that was good. That was good. Uh huh.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. That's uh, that's going to be one of the things we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about video game streaming television. We're also going to talk about whether you can love your video games and whether you can love your video games. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And in case you haven't heard, the Switch, a little bit of a success. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about how Nintendo's turning that success into cardboard gold. And we're going to look back at the... Events from CES last week, and some of the highlights in the video game realm. A lot of controller news coming out of CES. And then, I suppose we can't get through an entire podcast this week without touching a little bit on what's going on in the YouTube-verse. Google's recent controversial decision to demonetize small channels, and what it means for... Uh, all of our fellow content creators. And since we have a YouTube content creator here with us in Caleb J. Ross. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's you. That's you. That's you. Got it. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get a couple of different perspectives on on the demonetization and, and what it could mean for YouTube going forward. I'm excited. Yeah, it should be fun. It should be fun. I think we have, we're have we in sort of a unique position on the the YouTube front because you obviously are a content creator and I work for the evil media industry so I can play the <laughs> role of the big bad media suit. Dun,
1: dun, and dun. And technically, as of this decision, I no longer work for the media, uh, big bad media companies. So I can say whatever I want. Ooh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yep. You're a slave to the big bad media company. That's right. Yep. Putting out your content for them for them to leech off of those jerk, jerk holes. Yep. No. Yep. Actually, when we get to that point, when we get to that topic, I think the listeners will probably be a little bit surprised because I do not have nearly as much anger toward this situation as a content as small content creators uh seem to have in general. So I'm excited oh. to talk about that topic when we get there. Yeah,
0: that'll be fun. That'll be that'll be our main event for the for the day for the episode. I'm not sure how long of a, a discussion it'll be, but uh I figured it was something we should touch on. Mhm. Speaking of touching on things.
1: <laughs> How'd you know? Wait, uh, is my camera on? Uh, <laughs> what have you gross. been playing? Uh with uh a Joy-Con. Uh, <laughs> gross. Um I've been playing Skyrim. Uh, I think I said last time, Scott, that I'm going to be playing Skyrim for a long time, so I don't know why you got to keep asking me and, and get off my back about all of this. I, I, I'm going to play Skyrim. I'm going to keep playing Skyrim. And actually, no, that's not true because I think I'm pretty close to completing the story mode. Um, and I have such a backlog of games uh, which will get into uh, a little bit in the pickups but even without pickups recently I have tons of backlog of uh, of games that I have to get to. So once I beat that story mode I probably will be done with Skyrim for the time being. I've logged probably about 60 hours or so into it which in Skyrim world isn't really that much. Um, I think I played The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild as a comparison for about 70 or 80 hours. Um, and so I think I'm pretty close to the story mode being completed in that I think I'm literally within 5 hours or so of completing it. So um, didn't spend as much time as it as uh, other people have. If I didn't have such a backlog, I would probably continue. Um, otherwise, I've been playing uh, a Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, one of my favorite SNES games. I've been playing it with my two sons and they're loving it. Um, it's really, really cool to see them react in very similar ways to things that I reacted to when I was first playing the game long, long, long ago. So it's really, really cool. This will be my first game in the Cartridge Club Console Completion Challenge of 2018, where everyone at the Cartridge Club at cartridgeclub.org is trying to complete an entire North American library of a system. In this case, it's the Super Nintendo. And as of right now, collectively, the the club has completed nine games out of 715. So uh, we have quite a ways to go. Um, And I think uh, even when this challenge was started the real the the reality, the possibility of us actually completing all 715 games in one year is, is probably not likely. Um, but hey, it's a goal, you know, got to shoot for something. And this will give us an, uh, an excuse to go back and play a lot of games in the backlog. And who knows, maybe even by proxy, I will just inadvertently complete the Cartridge Club Alphabet Backlog Challenge, which is another one of the challenges. Maybe I'll just complete that in happenstance with, with going through all of these um, SNES games. So so we'll see. We'll see. How about you? What have you been up uh, plan?
0: Well, I was traveling uh, most of last week. I went to Las Vegas. Sadly,
1: not for
0: CES, although I was there while CES was going on. I was there for a friend's wedding. Uh, five, Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Five days in Vegas is way more than any sane human being should spend in Vegas. Mm-hmm. I think my, my liver and my <laughs> kidneys are still recovering. I don't know that it will ever be the same, <laughs> but so traveling, I finally got a little bit of a chance to log some time with the Nintendo switch. And frankly, I had not really even touched the switch since I finished, um, Zelda breath of the wild back when I first picked up the switch at launch. Um, uh, like you, I probably logged you know, 70, 80 hours in, in Breath of the Wild um, and then never really used the Switch much after that, Other outside of a few random uh, Mario Kart sessions. So it was fun to dive into Super Mario Odyssey finally. Now, I'm on record as not being a huge 3D Mario fan. I prefer my Mario to be flat and <laughs> um, two-dimensional, but I'm so far. I'm having fun with Mario Odyssey, and I, I, I still am not a, a. I still don't think that I care for the controls of 3D Mario all that much. But mm-hmm. I would say this is probably the best I've seen it.
1: Did you think that because you were playing it traveling and therefore you weren't able to really use the pro controller that that would that had any impact? Have you had a chance to play much of it with the pro controller?
0: I haven't played any of it with the Pro Controller um, so far. The only play that I've given Mario Odyssey has been in in handheld mode, and actually that's the really the first that I've ever that I've used the Switch at all in handheld mode. Uh, prior to this, m- my Switch playing was almost exclusively entirely docked with the, the Pro Controller um i did notice that playing it in handheld mode a lot of the moves that it would teach me required some form of (laughs) like oh shake the controller this way or flick your wrist that way and i thought well shit if i do that my switch is going to end up halfway across the room uh so (laughs) there are many moves in that game that i don't
1: even know what they do or really how to do them so and luckily you can get through the game without ever using those moves so that's that's good
0: (laughs) For a system that is so popular because of its portability, uh, it seems like a very strange control choice.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Um, but really, yeah, the Super Mario Odyssey is literally the only thing I've played since our, our last episode, uh, just because of the travel. Um, so it's been a, a light gaming week for me. However, I did pick up some things. After I got back, or you know, sitting on the plane... Trapped with nothing but uh, really slow internet. I, of course, just browsed eBay and spent a bunch of money (laughs) and started working toward my 2018 collecting goals that we talked about in our last episode. So, you know, it's been a productive January so far. <laughs> one thing that uh, I picked up that wasn't a goal but it was something I touched on last week. Last week I or last episode rather I had picked up the Mattel HyperScan and the complete set of games. Well, this week I picked up the alternate package of the HyperScan console. It was available in two console bundles. There was the standard console plus one controller plus a game Package That was available at all the retailers. The, it was also available via mail order in a two player bundle. It looks almost like a blister pack sort of thing with uh, the same game pack in, but the only difference is it comes with a second controller. And uh, that bundle is far more scarce because it was only available through mail order. And what kind of sadistic bastard would order the hyperscan via mail order uh, (laughs) or, or purchase it in
1: general. That's true. Does is, does the logo or does the slogan on the two player bundle say, "Do you have too many friends? Would you like one fewer? Play the hyperscan with them, uh, because you will lose your friends."
0: Pretty it's, much, yeah. You know, it's yeah. Uh, I think the slogan is hyperscan for folks whose only friends are QVC.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, they they love me. Okay, <laughs> I, <laughs> they send me pre they send me a Christmas and a birthday presents every year, and all I have to do is pay the low. In monthly installments of 19.99. So (laughs) yeah, those payment plans—you gotta love them.
0: You gotta Mm -hmm. love them. I swear, my—I have an aunt who I'm fairly sure the only real human interaction she gets is with the operators on QVC and Home Shopping Network. Her (laughs) house is packed to the gills with useless crap, and that's that's coming from someone whose house is packed to the gills (laughs) with video game crap, right? (laughs)
1: Useful uh, crap. Useful crap, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Useful cardboard encased crap. What if they had, what, what if the uh, video game world, IGN, let's say, what if they started a QVC type network? Or they kind of just sold video game paraphernalia directly to you through uh, a Twitch stream, let's say. That'd be kind of interesting. That would be, that would be bad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I am a weak-willed individual. <laughs> it would be it would be no good It would be no good. Speaking of my weak will, I have managed to hop on a lot of Magnavox Odyssey 2 games and console and the Magnavox Odyssey 2 was one of the complete sets that I had mentioned last episode that it was one of my it was on my list of goals to complete growing up, I my first video game console or first video game experience was with the Texas Instruments TI ninety nine and uh, which was sort of a, a hybrid computer video game console. It had the uh, the cartridge slot, but it also the, the system was basically a big keyboard. Uh, so sort of along the same lines as the Odyssey 2, as a, a hybrid console uh, slash com- early computer. And so this the Magnavox Odyssey 2 has always been something that I've wanted to pick up, uh, just because it reminds me so much of, of my early gaming experience. And in the U.S., there are 49 games released for the system. It was definitely uh, sort of the, the third most popular system of the the second gen era behind the Atari and and probably the Intellivision maybe even fourth behind the ColecoVision much more popular in Brazil and Europe uh, than it was here in the US. So relatively small library, easy to collect for um, no real huge heavy hitters in terms of value for the games. But I picked up a a boxed console and 41 of the 49 games for the system. So got a, a good chunk of that collection out of the way. And the eight games that I have left, most of them are in sort of that twenty dollar range. Uh, there are a couple of uh, heavy hitters, quote unquote heavy hitters for the <laughs> for the system um, that are, are still in that list as well. The those were, yeah, that was basically basically my pickups. A lot of uh, obscure ish crap. Uh, what about you? Did you pick up anything better than than the horde of garbage I ended up <laughs> walking into?
1: Uh, no, uh, I'm, I'm confident I did. Well, I mean, I, I, I yes, probably. Um, this is without the <laughs> context of knowing of having played any sort of Odyssey or HyperScan games. Maybe they're fantastic. Uh, but I did pick up, I, I had quite a few limited run games, games, uh, come in the mail, uh, the last week, really over the last four days or so, I got five games come in. So they just sort of, uh, are all shipping at once. The, probably the production and everything is get is finally done. So, um, got a, quite a few of those in, uh, looking forward to playing a few of those. And then I also had some Amazon cash, some Amazon money. and so I bought a couple games that were on that have been on my wish list for a while. had the money that I had to spend anyway, so I might as well do it. Um, and that was Deponia, um, which I cannot remember why I put that on my wish list because I can't remember really anything about it. Uh, The way it usually happens is I'll be watching a YouTuber talk about a game, and it's a YouTuber whose opinion I generally agree with. They'll mention a game I'd never heard of, and immediately I'll just add it to my wish list. So I think that's where that one came from. Um, And then Okami HD, uh, I did not have—I believe Okami uh, was on 3DS, I believe, if that's correct, or one of the Nintendo handheld consoles— and I had I had never had a hit, uh, one of those consoles, so I never got to play it at all. But it always intrigued me because it looks amazing, um, and I've heard nothing but good things about it. So I'm excited to, to kind of play that, and I believe that came out just fairly recently, the Okami HD version for PS4. So that's that's about it. I'm looking forward to it all, though, as soon as I get this goddamn Skyrim out of my face. <laughs> so uh, going, speaking of your Skyrim progression here, you'd mentioned
0: that the it, it, it's going to be part of your Cartridge Club ABC Challenge's
1: which which letter is it fulfilling? Is it E for Elder Scrolls or is it S mm. for Skyrim? You know, it's funny because it, it'll have to be probably E for Elder Scrolls because um, I'm also for the uh, n- for the console completion challenge. Right now, I'm playing The Legend of Zelda, but then I also want to play Super Metroid. I play that. I try to play that game as often as I can. It's my favorite game of all time, so I'll, pro- I'll probably play that. Which that's an S, so I don't want to have S for Skyrim. But then I also have. Uh, Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Seven Stars, I think it is, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a game that I've never completed, and multiple, multiple times I've gotten very, very close to completing it, so I'll probably have that as well. Now, that means that I have potentially three different S's, so uh, if I wanted to then use uh, Legend of the Seven Stars as not an S, I'd have to go with L, but I already have L for Legend of Zelda linked Link to the Past, so... Already, though I played, uh, I'm playing a good number of games. They only satisfy a couple different letters. That's a very long-winded way of saying E. It'll <laughs> probably be E. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it'll be, uh, you know, it's going to be fun. Um, to finally play some other games. As much as I love Skyrim, it's, it's, it's. I'm ready to move on. I think. Have you been playing Skyrim mostly in handheld or mode or docked mode? Docked mode mostly. Um, and this is actually the first game that I played mostly with a pro controller. I didn't get a pro controller until fairly recently, November-ish or so of last year. Um, other than that, I've just been using the uh, Joy-Con grip, which I had no problems with. I think it, it it's very sufficient. It's just fine. But uh, once you start playing with a pro pro controller, you realize that it is only sufficient the uh, Joy-Con grip. Yeah. It's nothing more than sufficient. So, um, that being said, I, I've sort of I, I've started playing in, with in docked mode so that I can use the the Pro controller because I've become accustomed to it and I'm sort of um, now spoiled by it. Um, also, I've noticed in uh, in handheld mode the brightness settings for Skyrim you can't really turn them up too much. They're kind of gated. Um, I think to probably force you to use candlelight spells and things like mm. that in the darker dungeons. Um, and I, I just don't, I don't know, that doesn't, having to light another candle every, you know, 20 seconds or something just doesn't really do it for me. So I can use the brightness settings on the TV to actually make the whole game a little bit brighter, which is very, very helpful um, gotcha. for me. So because of that, this, the, the handheld mode is, is and there's another reason the handheld mode isn't quite as good.
0: Okay. That
1: makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Where would you rank the pro controller among the controller options in terms of, uh, versus a PlayStation controller and an Xbox Mm -hmm. controller and among the litany of controllers out there, where does the pro controller rank for you?
1: I think it's right up there. So I I don't have for full transparency. I don't have a lot of familiarity with Xbox controllers, never have had an Xbox and only played them a few times in college. I played them a lot, but, but, that was the first very first Xbox so um, so I would say it's right up there I love the PlayStation 4 controller and always will I think what if, if they could marry the uh, if they could marry the analog sticks from the pro controller to the PlayStation 4 style and design then I think it would be the perfect controller the 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 play on the analog sticks on the pro controller are just perfect I mean they they just, I've never played a controller quite like it in terms of how responsive it is and how um how how sort of uh they can reset back to neutral very very quickly very easily so you're not you know um, I don't know it's just very a very good controller so that that's my rambling answer for that interesting well maybe we'll yeah. touch
0: on on your request a little bit later on when we get into our controller news segment here uh, about a playstation controller that borrows a little something from the Xbox. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but first, first, let's talk about Twitch and Overwatch. So this last week, the Overwatch League, the OWL, launched with its inaugural slate of matches. Did you Pay, pay any attention to the Overwatch League stuff? Are you a an esports
1: fan? No, I'm not. I'm not an esports nor a regular sports fan. So, I have not really paid much attention to it other than just being um in awe at a distance. Um, I'm sort of though I'm really into gaming obviously, the esports thing is still such a foreign concept to me that and, and the idea that it gathers such a huge audience is still strange to me just because I'm not part of it Um, but and this actually falls in line with probably what our next story will end up being I'm not jumping ahead here but I don't really understand the appeal of the Overwatch League or any esports meaning that it's my responsibility to try to learn about it so maybe that's what I can do here is is try to understand it a little bit
0: I work in pay TV and so the uh, most of the folks that I work with are I'm, I'm much younger than them and we get pitched all the time on different new stations and new channels that are up and coming and and so we had we were pitched on an esports linear channel uh several months back and so everybody was poo-pooing it and saying, you know, though this can't possibly be a thing who would watch people play video games and <laughs> by by and large I like, I'm not one to I don't watch esports, I don't watch let's plays. It's just not my thing. If I'm in a if I'm going to watch a video game, I'd rather be playing it and spend my time that way. Um, so I don't even despite the fact that I'm a a a huge gamer and have to sort of wear the hat of the esports uh, enthusiast in my day job. I also am not a esports fan. But I saw a couple of weeks ago that a conversation uh, sprang up on Twitter that when it was announced that Twitch had paid Blizzard $90 million for the exclusive rights to uh, stream the Overwatch League content. And so when the news erupted on Twitter and. The surprise came about, or was aired about how much Blizzard had paid this ninety million for exclusive two year right. So effectively, it's forty five million a year. One of the people who was kind of saying that he he thought it was a typo and couldn't believe the the number was uh, actually a video games industry analyst Matt Piscatella for the NPD group, uh, who is by incidentally a fantastic follow on Twitter. It's at Matt Piscatella. That's Matt with one T. P-I-S-C-A-T-E-L-L-A. Definitely recommend following him if you're interested in the business of video games at all. And frankly, if you've listened to us for 13 episodes, um, you probably have some level of interest in in the game <laughs> games as a business. So I definitely recommend giving Matt a follow. Uh, but he was one of the folks that was surprised about what Twitch had paid and thought that it was an astronomical number. And now while I'm not trying to make a claim that $90 million is a small number, it sounds like a lot. It is a lot. But in the context of TV rights deals and especially exclusive TV rights deals, it's really a, a almost a pittance. So if you... Think about um, exclusive content. That's really what drives customers to a given platform in the video world. Uh, You can think about it in terms of non-video game content. If If you want to watch House of Cards or if you want to watch Stranger Things, you have to go to... Netflix. Right? You can't sign up for cable and watch it. You can't sign up for Hulu and watch it. It's it's only available through one vendor. Uh, if you want to watch Game of Thrones, you have to go sign up for HBO or wait until HBO sells you the, the Blu-rays or the, the streaming content. Um, so exclusivity and exclusive content is by and large what makes the video industry go round, And Exclusive sports content, uh, which esports is a branch thereof, is really the most lucrative branch of the exclusive rights uh, landscape in the video industry. So just to put it into context, uh, Turner, which owns TNT, TBS, CNN, uh, a bunch of television channels, uh, Turner and ESPN pay the NBA 2.7 2.7 billion dollars a year for the rights to exclusive game content for NBA games. So, uh, if you think about it in that context, 2.7 billion dollars a year versus 45 million dollars a year. Uh, if the the Overwatch League is even moderately successful at driving viewership and driving people to the Twitch platform, this 90 million dollar deal is going to be a huge, huge windfall for Twitch. So the opening week was was last week and the viewership numbers started being reported just a couple of days ago in the uh, TV industry trades and uh this it actually was a, a pretty astounding a pretty resounding success for them. Uh the opening re- week results over 4 days, I think it ran Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday uh for the game content or for the match content the average audience across those 4 days was 280,000 viewers and that's average basically they the way they measure that is they take every single minute of of content and say what is the viewership in this minute what is the viewership in this minute what is the viewership in this minute so it's not the 280,000 average is an average across the entire Host of the content, which it's not just like a peak or, uh, uh, you know, the highest number for each of those four days. Um, The actual highest, the the opener on Wednesday, drew an audience of 408,000 a minute and actually peaked at 437,000 viewers. And across those four days of the first week of uh, matches, they had a total unique viewership number of over 10 million viewers. So 10 million unique people tuned in to watch at some point during the first week of the Overwatch League, which is it's pretty astounding. To put that in context, I mean, it's hard to think, oh, 280,000 viewers over the four days on an average, That is that a lot? Is that not a lot? For, for reference, there's about 100 million pay TV households in the country. So 280,000 viewers doesn't sound like a lot. But if you look at other streaming content. So Amazon has had rights to NFL games this year, and they've been broadcasting the Thursday night games over the internet. And now, granted, those are, that wasn't exclusive content. Those games were also available either on NFL Network, on regular television, or um, NBC, or you know, whichever. It was broadcast among several different uh, broadcasters on on standard cable or, or over-the-air television as well, but the average for each of those NFL games on Amazon this year was 310,000 viewers. And last year, the NFL had games on Twitter, and the average viewership was 269,000. So for Overwatch to garner the same sort of viewership as NFL streaming games is is pretty fantastic. Um, pretty fantastic news for both Blizzard and for Twitch. Uh, So if you think, well, yeah, that's, that's great. But again, those, those games on Amazon for the NFL and Twitter, those weren't exclusive. People were probably mostly watching them on regular television if they were going to watch them. So if you want to take a look at television sports content, the Major League Soccer, which is the United States um, Soccer League. It's obviously it's not as high a quality content of, of soccer as like the European leagues. But if you look at the viewership for the soccer, for MLS soccer games on regular television on ESPN, Fox, and Univision, they, all of the games um, on those platforms average 250,000 viewers and they pay, all of those networks combined pay MLS $90 million a year for those rights. So I think this is all just to say that yes, 90 million dollars for two years of of Overwatch League is a big risk for Twitch. I mean, it's a it's a, a large cash outlay, a large guaranteed cash outlay, but it's it's a great gamble. Um, and if if the Overwatch League is able to even replicate some of the success in viewership that it had over this first week, this is going to be a no-brainer, a huge, huge. Uh, Windfall for Twitch.
1: That's really interesting. Where would Twitch have, uh, where would Overwatch have broadcast their matches had Twitch not bought this exclusive rights? Would they have ended up um, allowing uh, distribution through multiple platforms? And Twitch could have possibly been just one of those platforms. So, is it possible Twitch would have a portion of this audience? even had they not paid exclusive rights or or how do you think that would work
0: no my guess is it would somebody would have secured the exclusive rights the fact that twitch paid 90 million dollars to secure them means that there was a a basically a bidding war for them and it's it hasn't come out publicly yet who the other players were but i would be surprised if it wasn't um you know if if google wasn't in on it for for youtube's youtube red or youtube streaming Mm -hmm. i'd be subscribed i'd be surprised if Hulu wasn't in on the bidding, maybe Sling, I, I somebody else would have had it exclusively had Twitch not won the bidding on it.
1: Mhm. That's that's makes sense. And I wonder if there's because Twitch is inherently or had at least started as and still I think is primarily a video game streaming platform. I know it's not and that's not all it does, but I wonder if there's also some just uh, synergy, so to speak, uh with having a video game uh matches on Twitch. So it was almost there was there was some benefit to Overwatch, other but some benefit to Blizzard, other than the monetary benefit itself to leveraging a platform that is already familiar with this type of, of uh type of of media. You know, YouTube has YouTube. I watch YouTube for video for video game content, but not a lot of people do. Same thing with Hulu, that sort of thing. So maybe there's some other benefits there as well.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think this is definitely not only is is Overwatch League getting the benefit of the the cash from uh, from Twitch, but it's almost a strategic partnership. Uh, like you said, the the Twitch comes with a a ready population of gamers and, and folks who are watching live game stream content. Uh, it it really is a a good synergy there. Uh, and speaking of just the, the streaming market, and neither one of us are esports fans, but CBS news had a report, where they had estimated that uh, they were talking about just the the launch of the Overwatch League and how the how it had been it's looking like a success and just the money that that Twitch and, and other sponsors are pouring in and the fact that it's basically they're trying to replicate the the you know a real sports environment with the, the live fans and cheerleaders and the whole deal uh, and they had mentioned that their analysts had estimated that there are 191 million esports fans globally and that it last year 2017 the industry the esports industry generated over 660 million dollars in revenue and that's actually projected to grow almost uh, almost triple by 2020 to 1.5 billion dollars in revenue so i mean you look at you look at activision stock which own activision owns blizzard and that stock since yeah you know, 2014 is just gone gangbusters and a lot of it is the fact that they've got you know they've got their hands pretty heavily in the in the esports pie with uh, things like the overwatch league and league of legends and uh, you know world of warcraft is getting into it and they're they're really heavy into into esports and if the esports industry can grow at anything close to what analysts are projecting Activision is going to be very, very pleased.
1: You know, I think there's I, I think I've realized maybe one of the central aspects of esports that turns me off of it a little bit. And I think it's because the entire platform itself, the entire game itself is one hundred percent human curated and the game itself can be shifted um by altering a few lines of code. I know I'm dumbing it down quite a bit, but in comparison to other sports, uh physical sports, you know, it, there it there's more of the human element. It really does rely on the humans, uh, the human capacity, the human abilities to be able to really um, uh, uh, make the game interesting. And and but but with esports, I mean, there literally could be someone who changes a game up a little bit, can completely change the dynamic of the game, and therefore you know, everything is different. Um, and I know there's, there's. I'm confident that there are is um, people watching that sort of thing to make sure that sort of thing doesn't happen. And I'm sure once you start generating this amount of revenue, you have regulatory boards that are watching the code and making sure the code stays the way it is. And there's so many people playing it. You know, there's only a handful of professional football players uh when you compare that to the number of actual people who play Overwatch so there's a lot more eyes on it so i think people would notice changes and things like that more often but just the fact that the entire paradigm is built with people is just, i don't know it's an interesting concept i need to find a way to better articulate that because that's something i really want to dig into at some point
0: what your your Analogy there brings up a, a thought to me about the the fervor with which people oppose performance-enhancing drugs in things like baseball, a game where uh, you know there's a rich history of of what a statistic means that's been the same from generation to generation by and large, um, being altered by. You know, by drug use um you know the making it easier for people to bounce back from day to day making it easier for people to extend careers and and Mm -hmm. making it easier for people to you know hit 70 home runs as as opposed to 40 in a season um whereas what you're i think what you're really getting at with with your concern is a level playing field and making sure that that what is good today is good tomorrow and how do you tell what's how do you compare that how do you how do you make sure that there is a level playing field and in, in most, in many sports outside of the drug use situation, it's, it's all, it tends to be just physics based, right? You can't change the laws of physics. If you hit a ball at a certain trajectory at a certain, uh, a certain velocity, it's going to so- go a certain distance. That's not something that a line of code can change. Whereas in, in e um, uh, that sort of thing, it's almost like the juiced baseball. Um, you can, you can, a company could play with those things almost at will to generate the, the most uh, dramatic outcome possible.
1: Mm-hmm. I think you nailed it on the head. That's exactly um, my thoughts. So thank you for articulating that. You know, I, I, I feel like, you know, me as well as you might know a, a, uh, a partner, a lover, so to speak. Um, and considering we're talking about video games here, this rolls right into our next story. Wub, about Two Wub <laughs> <laughs> a uh, a woman who goes by the name Fractal Tetris Hurricane, um has announced that she is uh, wanting to marry the video game Tetris, and she plans to have a commitment ceremony after college. Uh, this story hits all of my sweet spots. Uh, it's def- It deals with video games, it deals with psychology, and it, it forces me to, and this goes back to what I alluded to earlier, it forces me to investigate something that I don't understand. And I really... I love uh, I love being the type of person. I take pride in being the type of person that goes out of my way to try to understand something that I just simply don't understand. I'm a firm believer that feeling all feelings are valid, even if I don't understand the the uh, root cause of those feelings or the source of those feelings. they're still valid feelings like that no one has a wrong feeling or a wrong opinion in the, on, on things. so. In this story, um, again, her name is Fractal, Tennis Hurric- Fractal Tetris hurricane uh, That's the name she goes by. That's not her given name. Um, and she is in love with Tetris, and she's been in love with several um, objects in the past. She is an objectum sexual, meaning someone who has physical attraction and emotional attraction to physical objects. Um, she's not the only person that's ever ha- been an objective sexual. It's, I don't want to say a thriving community. I don't really know, but I would guess it's not really a thriving community. But there are stories out there about um, a woman who's married the Berlin Wall, a woman who's married the Eiffel Tower. Um, there was an Olympic uh, archer who married her bow. Uh, so it's happened quite a bit. Um, there's even stories of uh of men marrying their their avatars on dating sims and things like that um so it's not even it's not even unique to the world of video games this scenario with tetris uh but i wanted to bring it up here uh because i think it's really interesting i, I actually made a really quick video about it um on my channel and what's interesting is this person uh, fractal tetris Hurricane, uh reached out and commented on the video and i noticed that she actually commented on a lot of videos out there all the videos that people were making about it she would comment on the videos and she was uh it was as you would expect uh a a youtube audience to be um she was met with quite a bit of hostility uh but good on her for uh being willing to put herself out there um and uh and and try to not necessarily educate people. Um, that's that's one of the things I noticed. She didn't really, she didn't really try to fix anyone's opinions or correct anyone's opinions. She basically just would pop up in these various forums and say, "Hey, that's me. If you have any questions, ask." You know, she was just wanting to answer questions and wanting to answer people's curiosities. Um, and so, uh, I unfortunately didn't have, didn't, uh, me being the introvert that I am didn't necessarily reach out and, and have any sort of lengthy conversation with her. I probably should have now that I think about it, cause it would have been a perfect opportunity to do so. But my opinion on this whole thing is again, I don't quite understand it. Um, I don't think I ever will, but I want to respect it. And I think, um, I don't know, I, there, there was a lot of, there's a lot of your sort of obvious questions that come up with this sort of thing. Um, anytime that you have a person in love with another person, there's a certain amount of questions, you know. Uh, but I think with this particular situation, my biggest concern was the idea of reciprocity, right? When you're in love with a person, the idea is that that person loves you back, and that's what makes a mutually beneficial relationship. Whereas with here, uh, at least as as a non-objective sexual, I I don't see how the object itself could reciprocate and give love back, or even consent to the marriage, or consent to the love, and um it makes me wonder if the mindset of an objectum sexual sexual is such that they feel such a kinship to this object that they can feel justified in speaking on behalf of the object and so it's it's almost a closer union than would be maybe a person to person type of union um i don't really know but it was such an interesting idea such an interesting thing to bring up um one of the other things that I'll mention that I thought was extremely interesting about it is um This uh, relationship is different than her previous relationship. So, she's been in love with her first uh, object. I don't know if it was her first, but she had a previous. She was a previous in love in love with a calculator uh, that she had named Pierre. And this calculator, after many years, I I don't exact know the exact amount of time, but it was quite a while, ended up breaking. And so she tried to buy a replacement calculator, and she admitted that it wasn't the same. The soul, so to speak, was really gone. It wasn't the same experience. However, with Tetris, uh, she talks about in these various interviews for these articles that are everywhere um, the uh, that she is able to play Tetris and enjoy Tetris on multiple different formats. So she, she can play a an NES cartridge of Tetris. She can play it on her phone. She can play it on the computer and get the same experience. And so in this case, the attraction isn't so much with a physical object as it seems to be maybe with the mechanics instead of the mechanics of the game. So there's a certain beauty in the way that the game actually functions and works. Which, if I look at it from that perspective, I can actually relate quite a bit. I mean, what video game player hasn't played a game and just been overcome with emotion when just something works? You know, something just feels right. There's that, they call it game feels, right? When the player can't really articulate what it is about the game that they're loving and experiencing, but it just works. And I anticipate that's similar, maybe, to what uh, to what Huracan is, is, is feeling here. I don't really know. Uh, but such an interesting story, and and I just wanted to talk about it and bring it up a little bit.
0: Before I saw your video on this, I had never heard of objectum sexual. I had no idea that there was even a thing for it. Before I dove in and 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 read the article that you'd linked in our our show notes here, I one of the things that I thought was interesting was it, at, toward the end of the article, it comments on some other. Uh, objectum sexual folks who and some of the other things that they're into uh, uh, this this woman in korea is married to a body pillow oh no a guy in korea is married to a body pillow depicting his favorite anime character uh a gentleman in washington state claims that he's had sex with hundreds of cars and is in a relationship with vanilla a vintage volkswagen beetle so i Mm -hmm. think really you know what what can we say but uh Domo arigato, Mr. Roboto.
1: <laughs> I think that's all we can say. You're right. That is all we can say. Um, yeah. So uh, if uh, if anyone out there has a relationship with an object, uh, a physical relationship with an object, please reach out to us at MOU Podcast on Twitter. Uh, I'd love to hear about it and uh, see if I can't better understand that a little bit.
0: Absolutely. So. Let us know. Let us know what, what you
1: love. Speaking of machines... Uh, crushing things and being uh, loved and being and loved, being loved. <laughs> uh, tell us about how the switch is absolutely crushing sales in japan
0: well i mean it's no secret we've we've talked previously on prior episodes about how the switch is selling like gangbusters becoming the fastest selling video game console in history um, it's sold over 14 million now I believe consoles since launching in March and of those 14 million 3.4 million of them were sold in Japan so just 44 weeks in 2017 from launch to launch day till the end of 2017 uh, 3.4 million consoles is in Japan is astounding um, when you think of that's Basically, that's nearly a third of all of the consoles sold in the world uh, is in Japan. Uh, and obviously, Japan has had a, a storied love affair with Nintendo, uh, you might say, and, J- and especially with Nintendo handhelds. And the 3.4 million console sales for the Switch is outpacing all of the other Seventh gen systems combined, um, or not combined, but all of the other seventh gen systems, whether it's the PlayStation 4, PlayStation, Sony sold 920,000 PlayStation 4s in Japan in its first 44 weeks. So you think about just under a million versus 3.4 million. So that's a three to one ratio that the Switch is outselling the PlayStation 4. Uh, from it's launch crazy. through forty-four weeks in Japan, and really the only system that can come close to this pace that the Switch is on over there is the 3DS. And when you look at sales charts, and we'll we'll put a, a graph of the sales charts uh, into our show notes, so check that out on MastersOfUnlocking.com. Uh, but the it's all it's almost eerie how in lockstep the pace of sales from for the first 44 weeks are between the Nintendo Switch and the Nite- Nintendo 3DS,
1: yeah. And I think handhelds in general in, in Japan are more popular because of, of limited space, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people just generally have less stuff, they have less space, and so, um, and not to mention that it's obviously Nintendo's a Japanese company, and so there's going to be a sense of pride and uh, there as well, um, so. The handheld nature itself or the handheld uh, console itself doesn't surprise me that it's so popular. But seeing, I guess, I guess really, I shouldn't, we shouldn't be too surprised. I mean, just considering one, again, that the handhelds are very popular there, but also, I mean, the Switch isn't just crushing it in Japan, the Switch is crushing it everywhere. Um, so it, it's, it's such a, an amazing success story. Um, it's crazy. It, it really is. I, it'll be interesting to
0: see from here how, how the comparison in, in Japan, especially, how it, maintains a convert uh uh, you know in in sync and lockstep with the 3ds's sales history or if it starts to diverge now i i tend to think that i'm dubious that the the switch can maintain a 3ds like pace anywhere just for for a couple of factors one obviously the the 3ds is a much lower price point than than the switch uh you know if you're buying multiple switches you're you're laying out even considering, even taking away the fact of uh, you know, the the questions about um, availability, and in Japan they're they're still having trouble finding them. They're still being sold out almost instantaneously at every retailer. But there's a higher price point, and I think the higher price point combined with to allude you know, going back to your point on just space, if one of the things that fuels the 3ds is its collectability and people will have their 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 primary play 3ds they'll have their super famicom themed 3ds their their Yoshi themed 3ds their pikachu themed 3ds their Metroid 3ds right there there's a there's a pretty decent size collector population of folks who have multiple 3ds's I don't think that translates to something like the switch and and part of that is the price and part of that is the the larger footprint that a console the size of the switch takes up. It's, it's not a large console, but people like that are going to want to have the box and everything. And you can only have so many console boxes before uh, that gets untenable.
1: Speaking from experience. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it sounds very strange coming from you. It's, <laughs> it's almost, it's almost like this is a, uh, this is an intervention and you're admitting it, you know, first step is admitting that there's a problem, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can only love so many objects at once. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Don't ever say that I think uh, what's what's interesting too is we're also speaking about the switch as it exists right now, and as we'll talk about a little bit later, there's been a lot of innovation already in terms of what the switch can offer and it makes me wonder if there will be f- different form factors of the switch as well I mean right now we think of the switch as this tablet sized thing with controllers are they going to somehow make it smaller are they going to with while maintaining the use of, of current uh, joy-con sizes or you know it's hard to say really what Nite- nintendo can come up with They're geniuses at making people want to collect things mm-hmm. so i i anticipate there's already they're making multi-colored uh multi-colored uh joy-cons you know they have tons of different colors of joy-cons yeah. which i'm sure collectors are jumping on top of so they're they're gonna find they're gonna figure something out I, they won't they won't let a a, a generation go without finding some way to make it collectible
0: absolutely and i think this generation you, you alluded to it here the multiple different color joy cons i think you're probably we're probably on the verge of multiple different types of docks, multiple dock mm-hmm. themes you know if you could have a monster hunter themed dock or a mario themed dock or a, a zelda themed doc i think this i think the switch will be less about uh understanding quote unquote console sales as understanding sort of the, uh, modularization of, of those sales, you know, uh-huh. piecemealing things together. You can basically outside the, the, the actual screen tablet itself is the only part of the switch that you can't buy a la carte. Uh-huh. You, you can buy the charger, you can buy the dock, you can buy the, you can buy the, the joy cons, you can buy the, you know, every component of the switch, Uh, outside of the screen you can buy modularly ship of theseus right
1: you just find a (laughs) eventually it won't be the same switch yeah exactly
0: and you know eventually it might even be like uh one of those arby's switches and be made completely out of cardboard
1: (laughs) arby's i love you did you free food
0: did you see all those uh all those tweets (laughs) that they had from People bringing year. it back, yep. Yeah. Saying <laughs> Arby's, Arby's did it first. <laughs> it almost makes me wonder if Nintendo didn't see
1: those and think, you know, we could make things out of cardboard. God, yeah, if they had that, someone was watching that art, were thumbing through their their uh, Twitter feed, their Arby's Twitter feed through their Google cardboard glasses, and they kind of realized, <laughs> whoa, I can do some stuff here. <laughs> That's right. So. Man. I since we're on the
0: subject of the Switch and and the cardboard stuff, let what do you have to say we hop ahead here and just talk about the 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 Nintendo Labo?
1: We might as well because I'm super 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 excited about this. So Nintendo uh, has is releasing in in April. They released a uh, they've released a teaser trailer kind of thing for it, but in April it's actually coming out. It is what they're calling Nintendo Labo, and it's a uh, I guess you could call it a an ecosystem of cardboard accessories for the Switch uh, that have a slant or a bent toward the educational. Um, so imagine Legos meets Switch meets uh, Google Cardboard or meets any cardboard. Um, and... It's it's such an interesting concept to me. I know we talked a little bit about this offline. I don't want to spoil it, but you you don't necessarily have the same uh, the same uh, attac- uh, attraction to it that I do. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's because I'm a parent, you know, and I can see my kids having a lot of fun with this. I can see myself having a lot of fun with my kids with this. Mm-hmm. But what I really like about it, uh, and just to give some context to when I say they're accessories, imagine a uh, imagine a cardboard. Um, a cardboard uh, uh, motorcycle handle, like you have two handles made out of cardboard, and the switch goes in the middle, and the Joy-Cons go actually in the handles of this uh, motorcycle-looking thing, and as you turn the motorcycle or as you turn the cardboard as you would a motorcycle, the the switch itself reacts to this. So it's really just using that uh, gyrational abilities, the 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 gyration, I guess gyration? Yeah, abilities in the Joy-Cons in in different ways. Um, And so... It's, it's a really interesting idea. Again, it's it seems like it's leaning more toward the educational so that kids can kind of kind of learn about levers and pulleys and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but what I love about it is, is the cardboard aspect. And there's been a lot of uh, a lot of people talking about how uh, the cardboard is too is cheap. you know, by its very nature, it's this cheap thing that could easily break that sort of thing. but that's exactly what I kind of am drawn to about it. Um, in the same way that Google cardboard, for example, um let people realize let people see what virtual virtual reality really is and that you can have a decent virtual reality experience um using just a cardboard uh face a cardboard uh visor and put your phone putting your phone into a cardboard visor and using that as a virtual experience um and so it kind of removes this this uh this con- it removes the the authority or this it removes the gravitas from uh, technology and allows you to see it through different eyes, see it through eyes that just aren't as um, you can see it as not such a complicated endeavor, uh, which I really, really cool. So I've already pre-ordered one of the sets. The sets aren't terribly ex- inexpensive; they're actually way more than I thought they were going to be. Yeah. Um, so, which is kind of a bummer, kind of a downfall. But um, I'm just so excited about the novelty of it and playing with it uh, with my kids that I had to pre-order one of them. So.
0: I think you probably hit the nail on the head with the the parent thing. I mean, thinking back uh, at leading into the the announcement and the reveal, Nintendo was sort of hyping the, the the video by saying, you know, if you're if you're a kid or you're a kid at heart, we've got you know this upcoming announcement is really for you. And just looking back now on all of the um, all of the imagery and and. Promo material that Nintendo's released since every picture is you know, of a younger child, like you know, anywhere from that kind of six to I would say twelve age range, playing with uh, playing with the 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 Labo stuff and playing the piano or the 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 motorcycle handlebars or the fishing pole. Um, so I think that, I think you're probably hit the nail on the head on on why we have the differing different levels of excitement for it, because it's not something that as a, as a single guy, I would say, you know, I'm going to sit here and play with my cardboard fishing pole. Um, whereas (laughs) I can totally see the, the fun of, of you you watching your kids and, and building it together with your kids. It's almost like, like, uh, Labo is cardboard Lego, Mm you know, mm -hmm. cardboard Lego that you can tap into some
1: sort of video game world with. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I definitely get that. Is there an element of collector aversion to it in that, um, it's very, it's very reason for being is that it has to be opened and torn apart and constructed. And once that's done, it's no longer, it's, it's no longer a sealed kind of entity. So you really can't enjoy it. If it's, if it remains sealed, you can only enjoy it. If it's actually been opened up, there's no digital version of cardboard. There's no, um, you know, anything like that? Does that play at all into it?
0: You know, I I hadn't thought about that, but maybe. I mean, I I've collected more Nintendo branded cardboard than <laughs> than most folks. Uh, so it, it it sounds a little hypocritical for me to be saying, oh yeah, Nintendo selling people cardboard because <laughs> I've spent way more money on Nintendo cardboard than probably anyone should. And I, I just don't know. I said, maybe it's just because I suck so god awful at building things. <laughs> like, you know, if I have to build furniture or if I have to build anything that requires, you know, uh, a, a saw and a nail uh, and fitting
1: pieces together, that, that sucker is going to fall over in a heartbeat. <laughs> I think you, uh, you protest too much when, you, when your example is things that require a saw and a nail. I can, <laughs> I can think of very few things that require a saw and a nail. Okay, here's my one nail, check, and my saw. All right, let's build this uh chair. <laughs> see, see, so you're, I guess you're not wrong. No, I, I, have, no, to, I have to I... trust you on that. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, yeah, no,
1: saw, saws and nails are not my thing. <laughs> If you if you hit the nail in and it bends if the, if the nail bends you can always saw it off rather than try to pull it back out so <laughs> I I will say however that I
0: do I am glad that there's a lot of a uh, lot of hype around this I'm glad that people are embracing it because I'm a Nintendo shareholder and Nintendo's up 5% today
1: <laughs> That's nice I am also a Nintendo shareholder I have one share. And I bought it way too late, so that increase is probably equivalent to about thirty six cents. I, guess,
0: so. I think that I saw somewhere. I haven't done the the math myself, but I saw a, a analyst comment that uh, releasing cardboard has made Nintendo one point two billion dollars of company value in a day. That's crazy. That's <laughs> so crazy.
1: God, that's nuts.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder if 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 a company other than Nintendo had made the same announcement, do you think people would be as interested in it? Like, if, if Sony had come out and said, hey, you know what, we're going to make cardboard stuff for you to build and put
1: together, and you can put your
0: PlayStation Vita in there. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: aside from the obvious reason that not everyone has a PlayStation Vita, I would say uh, I would still say no. And this actually gets back at something I've talked a little bit about in some of my videos recently, and that's the idea of a company's why, you know, why they exist, their, their reason for being. Um, a great author named Simon Sinek talks about this idea of why, and he his mantra is that people don't buy what you what you do, they buy why you do it. Um, and he uses the example of Apple all the time. The company Apple, they could release anything and people would buy it because they know that Apple releases a certain product that fits into a certain lifestyle and that that represents a certain thing. You know, if you look at it objectively, the technology Apple uses for their Apple TV, for example, probably isn't any better than TiVo. You know, TiVo, when it was released, is probably still, a, a technologically speaking, a better piece of software or a better piece of, of equipment. But... Why does TiVo fail and Apple TV succeed? It's because it was made by Apple and that that works for them. It's part of their why. And so I think having something cardboard like this actually kind of fits in with Nintendo's why. I mean, they want to make family-friendly entertainment, family-friendly interactive entertainment um, in novel ways. Novelty is a big thing for, for, for Nintendo. Novelty is not such a big thing for PlayStation. Um, that's probably why PlayStation Move didn't really work that well um, because it's too novelty. It doesn't make sense for them. Um, And so and also, I mean, the the, the, uh, Labo only works because of the switch integration, you know, with the touch screens and the the Joy-Cons that can uh, that that know their place in 3D space. That's that it requires that in order to create some of these unique um, experiences. So I, I can definitively say that no, no other company could make it work, nor should any other company try to make it work.
0: And I think you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, There's a a Verge article that that you linked to in our show notes by by Andrew Webster, who I thought he put it really succinctly in in the article he said uh it's satisfying in the way that putting together a big lego set is and when you couple that with nintendo's knack for creating playful exciting experiences it seems like a winning combination and i think that that gets to the core of of who nintendo is they're always willing to try something new and push the envelope and do things that some people will think that's insane that's asinine but uh, Nintendo more often than not I would say has a way of pulling it off and making it uh, making it a success. Uh, I think the 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 flops from Nintendo, you know, whether it was the Virtual Boy or the the Wii U were a really more flops of timing than anything else, I think. If you look at the Virtual Boy, I mean it, it was really basically ahead of its time right i mean you you look at this the the relative success that virtual reality is having in in the world today um and and virtual boy was almost sort of a precursor to that and if you look at the wii u really the switch is what the wii u was trying to be but it just didn't quite get there and now they've basically taken the Wii U and redeveloped it as the switch even the the games are the same, the games from the Wii U are all being re-released and and it's it's really just a, a almost the definitive version of the Wii U is the switch mm-hmm. um, So even Nintendo's failures are are less about the idea and more about um, how they fit into it the curtain current point in time, I would say
1: mm-hmm yeah, and just to uh, confirm my riches, uh, my day's gain on my Nintendo stock is three dollars and forty-seven cents. So, when we do go out uh, for drinks, half of a coffee is on me. Dude, you could almost
0: oh. you could almost buy one of those cardboard Arby's meals.
1: <laughs> well, just the cardboard part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't get the actual sandwich, which is which is unfortunate. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That that's probably the the best part is probably the cardboard anyway. That's probably true. <laughs> Speaking of cardboard and things that get packaged inside a cardboard.
1: Ah, there you go. You lost me there for a second, but you brought it back.
0: <laughs> so as I mentioned last week, I was in Vegas watching from the outside as people were having fun at CES. And I was busy drinking with my with with the wedding party. Um, I don't know who won that scenario. But... <laughs> <laughs> there were some cool things released at CES. Last Last episode, we talked about the history of the Consumer Electronics Show and how it had, despite its rich legacy, the despite video gaming's rich legacy at CES, it has sort of gone the way of the Dodo there. Um, CES is more about... Uh, the the overall electronics industry, things like televisions and smart toasters and uh, refrigerators with the smartphones and video streaming built into them and uh, an app for every single component uh, in your home. But this is probably the first CES in recent memory th- where some pretty decent tidbits of, of video game news came out of it. Uh, and, and most of it was controller and peripheral based. And I think that's really I think what we'll end up seeing more at CES is it's going to be more your third parties, uh, folks like Retrobit um, announcing things and, and having booths on the floor where they're not overshadowed uh, at, at some where they like they would be at something like E3. So we had touched a little bit about RetroBit's announcement uh, for CES in our last episode. They were planning on, RetroBit had teamed up with Sega and got official Sega backing, official access to Sega um, designs and everything, and are releasing officially licensed Genesis, Saturn, and Dreamcast Bluetooth controllers with console receivers, sort of like the eight-bit DOE receivers, and USB receivers for use with uh, computers or um, Android devices. Did you did you take a look at these at all after uh, after the news broke and pictures started rolling out?
1: Yeah, I did, and I I I like them less so for the design element, and but more so because it's going to allow collectors to be able to maintain the original hardware. Um, in the same way that you would burn a CD, if you owned a CD, you might burn a CD so that you don't have to take the original with you and get it scratched up, all that kind of stuff. Here I am being an old man talking about CDs. What what are those? <laughs> um, but it's the same kind of concept that I really appreciated about it, more so than even the designs or the Bluetooth capabilities or anything like that. That's that's not as interesting to me. I was really more of a Sega kid growing up. I had the
0: Genesis. I had a Genesis before I had a Super Nintendo. I had Sega CD, the Saturn, the Dream cast the whole deal until they went belly up i was all in on sega so to me i think the coolest thing is seeing those uh those iconic red genesis red and black genesis boxes those peripheral boxes mm-hmm. with the the branding running up the side um it, it's just it's got some really cool nostalgia for me um, I'm definitely planning on ordering them as soon as they become available because I really like gaming in my setup with, with the, the 8BitDo controllers for the, um, Nintendo and the Super Nintendo. And I have the 8BitDo bit controller for the N64, but they haven't released a, a console receiver for it yet. Um, but I, right now the, I play the Genesis with the official, Wireless six-button controller, and but that has an uh, infrared connectivity to it. So anytime you lose line of sight, it it basically the the controller stops working, and mm-hmm. so that's not a great solution. But it's probably the best wireless solution out there at this point until until these come out. So can't wait to get my hands on them
1: and and give them a try. And the infrared uh, controllers, the existing official wireless controllers, those are aren't those battery hogs. I mean, do they? suck battery batteries pretty bad or, or how do those
0: they happen? yeah they're not terrible i mean for they're not like uh you know compared to say a nomad or something they're not they're not <laughs> awful um but yeah they they do run on on double i think double a batteries and i think they it runs on like four of them but I, I use rechargeable double A's in them, and I, mean I, I have to re, I have to swap them out every time I use them. but I think that's more about just the the time that it goes between mm. my Genesis use um, than anything else yeah that makes sense. But these are all these all have you know rechargeable lithium ions in there, I believe, and uh, USB connectivity for charging. And I think uh, i'm I'm stoked to see it. I think I'm really excited to use the the wireless Dreamcast controller because the Dreamcast controller's got kind of that funky cord coming out the bottom of it. so it's just mm-hmm. weird weird to hold on to because I would it it's always like I, I have short little arms, so when I hold the controller it sort of sits on my stomach when I'm leaning back playing and, and that thing it looks like it's a
1: umbilical cord sticking into me. <laughs> that that's its own kind of amazing visual image though. That's that's <laughs> desirable to some degree. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I thought thought you might enjoy that. Yeah, but instead you got you feed directly from the video game, I get it. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Matrix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know Kung Fu.
0: <laughs> so while we're on the topic of controllers, we've got more controller news and the Duke. Now, you had mentioned before that the your your really only experience with the Xbox controller was the OG Xbox. Mm-hmm. Were, were you, uh, did you use the original, the Duke, the Claw, or did, were you using the, the Xbox S, the little mini redesigned controller?
1: No, I definitely remember the giant controller, um, which is partly why I'm surprised that there's excitement for it coming back because if I, if I remember correctly, it was sort of a laughingstock and, and maybe you can help me understand has that mentality changed? Have people actually looked back fondly upon this controller? Whereas at the time it was kind of hilarious.
0: No, I think it's, it's more nostalgia. I think now there are people that preferred the Duke and they tend that people with, with big hands have really liked the Duke and that's really the reason it was designed that way. It was released with the thinking that Americans, it was really more of a U.S.-focused Ameri- uh, US console. And the thinking was, we're not making consoles for kids. We're really making consoles for sort of the high school to college age American um, probably having larger hands. When, When the... The, the actual, the mini controller, the Xbox S controller, was actually the standard controller released originally in Japan, and they released the smaller one in Japan because of just smaller people, smaller hands, and the whole deal. So it was really intended to be an ergonomic design The, the originally with the Duke, but I have tiny little carny hands, so the Duke <laughs> was never my thing, so... Definitely. I think it's cool. I think it's, it's nice that they're throwing a little bit of homage to the OG Xbox. Um, but they, they had, well, this was announced back at E3 last year. They hadn't had a date or a price associated until this past week. Um, so it's coming out at the end of March. So pretty, we're just around the corner here and it'll be 70 bucks. And I what I didn't realize was that uh, Samus Blakely, who was one of the original Xbox designers, is the guy de- designing it and had partnered with is partnering with Hyperkin to, to actually produce it. And the the logo medallion on the controller uh, where the logo medallion was on this new duke controller is actually an oled screen and when you boot up your console it actually plays a video of the original xbox's boot
1: sequence video on the controller that's kind of kind of interesting interesting is a very polite way of saying super 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 dumb (laughs) there's no reason for that to exist (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's probably fair
1: that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to add probably three pounds to the weight, and it's yeah. just yeah, it's going to. And be... I'm sure that's a lion's share of that seventy dollar price tag too. You're probably right. Yeah. You know? Is it? Uh, I'm looking. I'm scanning through the article. Is it uh, corded or cordless? Do you? Do, I do you know. It. I, it's corded. It is yeah. corded. It's actually got the same sort of breakaway
0: cord that the original one has. Hmm. So, like the original Xbox had those cords where the the end that actually plugged into the console then had like a little dongle on it that plugged into the cord that went to the controller. So it was sort of, it, it was intended for uh, trip trip yeah. control so that if you tripped over the, the controller cord, because the Xbox was really designed as a party system or really like a, a local multiplayer and, and land party type setting. So they envisioned people, you know, walking around and, cutting in front of televisions and stuff, and they didn't want that giant 70,000-ton Xbox go flying off of somebody's (laughs) entertainment center and
1: going right, crashing through someone's floor. They're so confident in the appeal of their system that they actually count on people walking away from it. So that's... (laughs) Good job, Microsoft. (laughs) (laughs) It
0: it is interesting, the timing on this. You know, I, I see more and more people collecting original xbox stuff and i think it's a con con confluence of events with the xbox one doing the backward compatibility as well as just the the timing and sort of the the collector cycle the the kids who grew up with the original xbox and and the playstation 2 are now into that kind of early to mid 20s era you know if you grew up as a as a preteen and teen with that PlayStation two. Now you're in the stage of life where you're probably just getting done with college and you're getting nostalgic for the what's retro gaming to you. Um, and I'm actually, I've talked to a bunch of game store owners and they're, they're, seeing that same sort of thing where before you couldn't give away Xbox games or Xbox systems. Now they're starting to become hotter items in some, my local mom and pop game chain out here on the East coast, they used to have a thing where if you went in and bought two games from any, you know, from original Xbox, you would just get one free. So it was just trying to move that, that, that inventory out. Um, I think that's, that's probably, those days are probably over. So if you're, if you're interested in OG Xbox collecting, I would say get on it. Cause you're about to, you're about to lose your window.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's not the only Xbox news, Xbox controller news that we have though. Correct? It's not,
0: it's not, this gets back to your comment earlier where you were thinking, you know, if they would release a PlayStation four controller, with kind of that asymmetrical analog stick layout of the Mm -hmm. xbox controller well hori is doing exactly that they are releasing an officially licensed bluetooth wireless playstation 4 controller called the onyx wireless controller and it's basically a playstation 4 controller Mm -hmm. laid out and designed like a in the manner of the xbox 360 or xbox one controller it's got the the asymmetrical analog sticks, and uh, it's got a little bit of a, a different feature set. It doesn't have the the light bar of the, the DualShock 4 controller. It doesn't have the built-in speaker or the headphone jack. So you have to trade a little bit of functionality, but if you are someone who loves the Xbox controller style, and I know a lot of people, that's their that's their all time favorite controllers that Xbox controller. Um, this is, this is a way for you to actually play some real games and have the controller that you like.
1: Yeah, I'm actually really, I'm, well, I don't want to say really excited about it, but I am adequately excited about this. Um, ever since I've been playing with the pro controller, I've kind of realized, and I guess really the switch in general, because no matter how you hold the switch, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, analog sticks are off center. Um, I'm really liking it. I I kind of... I get it. It makes sense to me. So if I'm ever in the need for another controller, I may pick one of these up. Um, But I don't know that I will be in in the market for a new controller for a while because I still think the PlayStation 4 uh, controller is working. It works great anyway, so... Yeah, I, I
0: really like the PlayStation 4 controller. I'll definitely... Check it out because I, like you, I love the, the switch pro controller. One of the things that I'm interested, I'll be interested to see on this Hori controller. And I, I do like the Hori Hori has made some fantastic third party, Mm -hmm. uh, controllers. They do a great job. It's not sort of your typical run of the mill, cheap ass third party accessory producer. Uh, they make a lot of high quality arcade components and things like that. Um, and have for years, but given the fact that this doesn't have the speaker in it and it doesn't have the light bar in it, I'm wondering if the battery life on this controller will be much better than the DualShock 4. Um, one mm-hmm. of the complaints on the DualShock 4 is that the battery life is atrocious. I Actually, the first thing I do whenever I get a DualShock 4 is I open it up and I put in a double capacity battery because the, the battery life on the stock battery is
1: brutal. And that's, I, that's just what I, I remind myself of that situation every time I feel like I play video games too much. And then I realize I've never once run out of battery power on my PlayStation 4 controller. So I'm thinking, well, good, I, I, I'm I'm still... Social. I'm still not, I'm not a hermit yet because I've never run out of battery power yet. So for me, it works just fine. That's, that's crazy. If you
0: apparently have never played video games in your life. (laughs) And never. I run out of, I run them dead on the double capacity ones. And that's like, uh, somewhere between the eight and 12 hour mark in a session. (laughs) I imagine yeah. this this also may have something to do with the fact that you're married and a parent and actually mm-hmm. have have a life outside of video games.
1: Yep, yeah, it's it's not a great life. Oh no, it's it's <laughs> it's awful. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was just terrible. just me and me in the video games. That'd be fantastic. Um, hopefully my wife is not listening. Now. <laughs> I won't tell her. Oh good, thank you. Thank yeah. You. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so this Onyx controller since we've gotten you in enough trouble here <laughs> it so far it's been announced that it's launching this month uh, i think actually just a couple of days ago as we record this january 15th uh in the uk but no word yet on on when the u.s release will be so uh, this may ha- may have to be if if it's not coming soon might be something that i might just try importing and see if i can get it for a decent price on amazon uk or something but for sure speaking of xbox one controllers there's a new xbox one elite controller in development perhaps so the xbox one elite controller are are you familiar with the elite controllers at all are you like in that scene at all i am familiar with them i've never used one though me neither i have friends that swear by them and it's typically the you know the people who are all into the twitchy first person shooter and, and the, the competition type stuff. Um, but I guess their, their rumor is they're redesigning it. So the Xbox one elite controller, as I understand it is not Bluetooth. It's got, and it doesn't have a rechargeable battery built into it. So what they're actually developing here is, allegedly they're developing a new tweak on the Xbox One Elite controller that has a built-in rechargeable battery with a USB-C connection as well as Bluetooth functionality. So my what I got to thinking when I saw that it had Bluetooth built in. So the Xbox One I don't believe I don't believe the controllers are actually Bluetooth. I think they're a proprietary connectivity just like it was with the Xbox 360. So, I'm wondering if this is actually if it is a Bluetooth controller for this new Xbox One Elite controller, if you could then use that with a place a PC or even a PlayStation 4. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's if it's just straight up Bluetooth, I wouldn't think there'd be any reason why you couldn't take that new Xbox One Elite controller and just straight up use it with a PlayStation Four if you if you you know wanted to go that route. That would be kinda interesting.
1: Yeah, and according to the leaks, uh it does seem to be Bluetooth. Um so you could connect it to a PC at least. Um but again they are leaks to your point, so we don't know for sure.
0: Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it'll be something to, something to pay attention to, even though I can't, I don't think I could bring myself to pay. I think those things are what, like 140 bucks or something regular price for the elite controllers. Yeah. It's crazy. I, yeah. I just don't, there'd be no way that, that I would get that kind of benefit from it just cause I don't, I don't like the twitchy type games anyway to even to begin with. So,
1: yeah, there is a PlayStation four elite controller too, just to mention it, um, uh, which I've never used either, and I don't know if it's by the same company or not. I would imagine that it was since it's using the Elite name. Um, but it, it, but the, I don't know. The Xbox design just looks a little better anyway. So yeah, hmm. yeah. I guess I wasn't
0: even aware that there was a PlayStation One. That's how out of the competition world I am. <laughs> uh, I'll just right. it's it's oh, got some terrible reviews. So I'll just sit here by myself playing Yeast Eight for hours and hours and hours.
1: Yeah, that's coming out on the Switch. It is. Um, yeah, yeah. So I might, I might actually, I might pick it up now because I did play the demo when it was in the on PlayStation Four. Um, I downloaded the demo and I really enjoyed it, so I may pick that up on the Switch after if I ever get finished with Skyrim.
0: And it's definitely one of those games that won't suffer for having to like back itself off on the the visual quality at all. I mean, it's a gore- I played it through on PlayStation Four and it's a gorgeous game. And I did sample it a little bit on Vita. Um, and while it was a little bit muted on Vita in terms of the fidelity and just the, the amount of stuff on the screen, it wasn't, it was still gorgeous and was able to get the full, full experience. I'm hoping that the, when it releases on the switch, that it'll have the full revamped translation. Yeah. (laughs) That would be nice. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) It definitely was a little brutal.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Speaking of brutal.
1: Uh, what about this uh, YouTube stuff?
0: Mm, money,
1: money, money, money,
0: money.
1: <laughs> it's all, of course, it is. People can't be mad about that. But anyway, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Please, please proceed. Why don't you? Why don't you just give us a, a quick recap of what went down? Will do. All right. So, uh, some context I think is important. So, YouTube has been making a lot of changes to how they allow channels to monetize and sell advertising on their videos. Um, so if you are a YouTube partner, which to be a YouTube partner, um, so that you can monetize your videos, you have to be an account in good standing. You have to have, you know, a very limited to no copyright strikes against your account. So essentially you have to be a good account. And for years and years and years, how it's worked is if you're a good account, you can say, yes, I want ads to appear in my videos and therefore you would get paid for, uh, some of that advertising. Um, and a couple months ago, Google, or YouTube, well, it's the same thing, changed this up a little bit, um, and they said, you know what, we're actually, it, it, a lot of people feel uh, it, this was a response to some pressure that YouTube had received from larger advertisers. YouTube decided to uh, button, uh, d- decided to govern that a little bit more closely, and people were getting videos demonetized all over the place. Um Videos that would seem very uh, non-threatening, uh, very you know basic, bland kind of video content that really didn't seem that like it would strike the ire of advertisers would get demonetized. People didn't really know why. It seemed like it was just sort of a Wild West for for YouTube just kind of demonetizing whatever they felt like they wanted to demonetize. It was very strange. Um, for full transparency, I've had plenty of my videos demonetized, but for fuller transparency, that doesn't really mean anything. Uh, I make literally less than five dollars a month on YouTube, so it's not. Uh, it doesn't affect me too much and hasn't. That that initial round of demonetization practices and changes hadn't hasn't affected me at all. Well, this story um, is another move toward. Uh, demonetizing certain, or or towards making the rules for monetization a bit more strict. So, uh, what they've, what uh, YouTube has recently done is announced that starting in February, channels that have uh, both less than one thousand subscribers and less than four thousand view viewed hours in the last twelve months uh, will no longer be um, able to monetize their videos.
0: Is it? Is it an and, or do you have to have above a thousand subscribers and above four thousand hours viewed? It's an and.
1: It's an and, and I think so that's you a ha- important. You have, oh, go ahead. you have to be above both. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so, the, and I think that's important, which I'll get into a little bit. But uh, the the internet has lost its poop, has pooped its pampers over this. Um, a lot of, uh, especially small channels, have. Uh, really been outraged about this this move there really is nothing the internet does
0: better than <laughs> group rage i feel that's like that's very true that's sort of the internet's
1: uh you know reason for being uh, de tre yeah exactly yeah um I, so As you, as I'll, I'll, I'll make my stance here. Definitely. I want you to make your, your uh, observations from a media business perspective. I want to make my observations from a content creator's perspective. And I anticipate that actually our reviews won't, uh, that they will align surprisingly well. So, and,
0: and for full disclosure for, for listeners, we haven't actually discussed this ahead of time. So I don't know, I, I don't know what Caleb's position is and Mm -hmm. he doesn't know what mine is. So we're going to find out together
1: and uh, as one (laughs) big happy family. And hopefully, well, that this means we'll have an episode fourteen. Still, we'll see how <laughs> angry we get at each other. Um, so, from so from my personal perspective, this affects me none. Um, like I said, I make five dollars a month in 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 YouTube ad revenue, um, which is basically nothing. So I'm not losing anything by this uh, by any means. Um, I I think what this what this feels like to me, or what I hope that this is, is YouTube trying to find a better way to regulate monetization of videos in service to their advertisers. So YouTube is, if nothing else, an advertising platform, um, a platform for advertisers, I guess I should say. Um, while it still has at its, I think part of its why, going back to the, the whole idea of why's, I think part of its why is still to allow a a uh, a non-political, free sort of space for people to express themselves. The truth is, is that it costs a lot of money to run YouTube and, it's also big enough that Google and YouTube would be stupid not to make money off of this platform. So it can't be just this, this great bastion of, of freedom and everyone's having a good time and and, and there's no corporate, uh, corporate component to it. That's just not how it works. And so um, advertisers are what keep this thing going. Advertisers are what pay so that people – can't upload their hateful commentary or the hateful videos or whatever it was that would normally be they, that advertisers don't want to advertise on. It's the fact that there's advertiser dollars putting toward the platform that allow these other, that, that allow everyone to be able to upload any video they want to at any time. That's how, that's how the money is maintained. So YouTube understands this and YouTube has to appease their advertisers. And so I feel, I hope anyway, that this latest, uh, the demonetiz- demonetization, um, effort is going to supplant the previous sort of Wild West style that I was talking about. So whereas before people were very concerned, very confused about why Google would demon why YouTube would demonetize individual videos, my hope is that this is rather a way to allow channels to build up reputability so that YouTube doesn't have to then demonetize individual videos. In practice, this would be if I were a YouTuber with, um, let's say I was a YouTuber with 100,000 subscribers and I had tons and tons and tons of hours watched, but a lot of my videos were being demonetized, that's fury infuri- infuriating to me. But if YouTube is now saying, as long as you're a channel in good standing, you have over 1,000 subscribers, you have 4,000 hours of watch time in the last 12 months, meaning that people are engaging on your videos people are enjoying your content, they're imbibing your content, therefore we can now toggle your entire channel to be available for monetization rather than trying to filter each individual video. Um, And I I think hopefully YouTube has recognized that their demonetization practices of each individual video, their filter just isn't that great. Um, A lot of things are getting demonetized that really shouldn't be. Objectively speaking, they simply should not be. It doesn't make sense. Um, so that's my hope is that it's going toward that. If that is in fact the case, then I'm 100% on board with this. I think it's a great solution if it in fact is that solution. Even if it's not, I think what this does is it gives smaller channels channels the ability to have something to shoot for. So smaller channels, um, myself included, I'm including myself in this, there's always this uh, this idea, um, this very intangible nebulous idea that I want to make money on YouTube, right? I don't really know what that means, but I just want to make money on YouTube. And I'll get a few dollars trickle in here and there, um, and I feel like, good, I'm making some money on YouTube. That's that's great. I can afford a six-pack of beer this month. Fantastic. But it's it, it's been hard to validate that to... it When you really look at it from... And when you're really objective about it, it's kind of hard to validate that to yourself, that you are making money on YouTube. And this is one way, this is sort of one... Uh, badge, I guess, so to speak, that if you can reach 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 hours viewed in the last 12 months, then sort of you have this validity to you a little bit. Um, and I think that's going to go a long way for smaller YouTubers who don't have that validity. Right now, the only validity for YouTube is you can, when you get 100,000 subscribers, you can get a silver play button, and then you get other buttons sent to you, you know, these plaques, essentially, for a uh, subscriber levels. This is kind of a way for you to almost have that validation quite a bit earlier which I think is going to help. Honestly, I think is going to help motivate YouTubers. And those YouTubers who aren't motivated by this are probably the type of YouTubers that that don't necessarily want to ha- get money from YouTube anyway. They really do just want it as a platform to post their family videos and that sort of thing. So I'm I'm really I think, without uh, being open to to receiving uh, information and nuances in the future, as it stands right now, I'm 100 percent on board with this choice. I think it makes sense.
0: I completely agree with your assessment. Part of what YouTube is doing is they're putting in a process where anybody in in their premium monetization is every video gets 100% reviewed by an actual human being. So in order to do that, and in order to assuage the hesitancy and the purge of of potential advertisers that's happened in the wake of all of the, uh, you know, all of the controversies surrounding YouTube that everybody knows, uh, you know, what's going on there. So we're not gonna get into that. But I, I think there had to be a way to lower the burden for review in order to to make that possible. I was reading a, a Wall Street Journal article this morning that said that every day. 65 years worth of video is uploaded (laughs) to YouTube. So there's just no way that a, a manual review process could be done across YouTube. It's just not, not possible. So there has to be a way to ensure that the platform is, uh, has continuity. And the only way that the platform has continuity is if it continues to be, uh, ad supported, right? If, if Google continues to make money off of ad revenue, otherwise there, there's just no future and nobody has uh, the ability to upload their, their videos. Now, just like you alluded to Caleb, it's this, even though it's free for you to upload your videos uh, and and I'm saying you in the, all of us sense, not you in the Caleb J Ross sense, (laughs) even though it's free for all of us to upload whatever, you know, cat videos or, or crazy political ramblings or whatever it is to YouTube. It's not free for YouTube to host all of that for, for everyone, right? In in fact, the, the most expensive content for YouTube to host is demonetized content because by the very definition, if a video is demonetized, YouTube is not inserting an advertisement on that video. So it's entirely a it's entirely, you can think of it as a loss leader for them, right? They're the only way YouTube and Google, uh, make money off of a demonetized video is the hope that by having that extra content on their platform, you're more likely to stay engaged with their platform and stick around to then watch the next video that may be a monetized video. Um, so I think just from a from a business perspective, this is a no-brainer move by YouTube, um, and I think it, it's good for the community as a whole, even though I realize it can be demoralizing. But I think if you have, or have a smaller channel and are concerned that you're being you know, unfairly treated by YouTube, I think it it might be helpful to just think of the fact that having a platform for distribution has immense value in and of itself. So going back to my day job where I negotiate contracts for pay TV channels to either be carried or not carried on television. If a small startup channel comes to me and says, Hey, we want to be carried on your, on your cable television platform. If you know, if you're starting a new table, cable, cable, television network and you're going to do 24 seven cat videos. And you come to me and say, Hey, you know, feline TV, we got this great idea. It's going to be 24 seven cat videos. People love cats. People love seeing cats do crazy shit. It's going to be ad supported. We want to be on your cable television platform. I'm going to say, okay, that's great. What, uh, what are you going to give me so that I'll put you on the cable television platform. That network would have to come to me and pay me to put their network on TV because they have no viewership. They have no established name. They have, my customers aren't coming to me saying, hey, we want this cat video network, right? Because Mm -hmm. it doesn't have an established cachet. It doesn't have an established brand. So the fact that on YouTube, You can go and build your brand and get access to their immense distribution network right off the bat without at no cost to you, uh, I think is is almost reward enough. You know, I Mm -hmm. mean, the without YouTube, that would not be the case. You know, it just it just isn't the case in any other media that you get paid to to prove your concept.
1: Mm hmm. Beautifully spoken, sir. It's like uh, like you do that for a living. Oh, almost. <laughs> yeah. So we we, we agree. Uh, YouTube is great and everyone should shut up. <sighs> That's Is that what we're saying? Rage, no? rage. <laughs> you can send hate mail to us on
0: the Twitters. Caleb, tell them where they can find you for all that hate mail on the Twitters.
1: Oh, send all the hate mail directly to me. At VG Collectaholic, that is at VG Collectaholic, <laughs> and uh, I Wait also have a. Wait a minute! <laughs> I have a secondary Twitter account where I only accept love and praise at Caleb J Ross. That's Caleb, the letter J Ross. You can also find me at Ross dot com, uh, and you can find Masters of Unlocking. At many, many places. You can find Masters of Unlocking at MOU Podcast on Twitter. Mm -hmm, You can find mm -hmm. Masters of Unlocking at MastersofUnlocking.com, at Facebook.com forward slash Masters of Unlocking. And I, of course, it was a bit of a jest session earlier. Uh, VG Collectaholic is, of course, our friend and co-host, Scott. That's a me. Um, (laughs) You can also find him at Facebook forward slash VG Collectaholic and VG com, And on the Instagrams, which I think I said in the last episode, I was actually going to add the Instagram linked here to our show notes. And I didn't because I'm a terrible person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, Mm a
1: geez. Just trying to keep me down
0: all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm also yep. on Instagram, VG Collectaholic, there as well. Post uh, collection videos, pi- or pictures, pickup pictures, all kinds of pictures, because that's Instagram, and that's what we do. <laughs> that was so eloquent. You know, you know, I'm a master promoter. <laughs> I'm a marketer through and through. <laughs> uh,
1: if that were the case, you would have told them already where they can subscribe to us, so I don't believe you.
0: No, that's true. That's true. you found us. You've listened to us. Go ahead and <laughs> give us a subscribe. You can subscribe on iTunes and get this delicious, delicious ear candy delivered right to your mobile device every other week. We release on Mondays Um, and or you can subscribe to us on Google Play or Stitcher or any number of podcast uh, applications. If you head over to mastersofunlocking.com, you can subscribe directly to our RSS feed uh, or see all the podcasting environments that uh, that host our our little corner of the of the internets
1: i love it yeah i love it
0: yeah another another one down we we made it all the way through episode 13 so unlike a hotel we have a 13th floor Uh, Mm. we survived it we made it through (laughs) i think we'll have an episode 14 so things are
1: looking up that's pretty presumptuous of you. Well, you, you haven't, know. We haven't discussed this yet. That's true. That's true.
0: <laughs> I haven't seen the show notes thing show up yet in our Google Docs, so I guess until I see that, uh, who
1: knows? That's very true. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh. Well. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. We really, uh, really appreciate it. Uh, hit us up on Twitter. We love, we love chatting with with folks and hearing what you thought of the episode. Hearing uh, anything that you didn't like, give us give us some constructive criticism. We we like to we want to produce a show that you want to listen to every other week. So let us know your thoughts and how we can do better for you. And with that, we will catch you next time on episode fourteen of the masters of unlock.
1: Maybe.